and their mind is caught up with the affairs of this world. And while they come and they see that the Lord Jesus himself gave his body and soul, would you turn to Mark 15? And we're continuing on in the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, Mark 15. And today we'll be reading from verse 21 to verse 24. Mark 15 from 21 to 24. And I titled this message, The Centrality of the Cross. And the Word of God reads, They pressed into service a passerby, Coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of, of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Here we come to the epicenter of Christianity. If the word of God, as the scripture says, is like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces, then the cross is the head of this mighty hammer. If the gospel is the heart of Christianity, and it is, then the cross of our Lord is the internal valves of this heart. The cross upon which Jesus was nailed is the son of the solar system of all Christian doctrines where all the doctrines are pulled together by this gravitational force of the cross. And they all orbit around this one event of history. Meaning that the cross is the torch by which we are are able to understand the word of God. It is the 10,000 megawatts, if you like, floodlight that gives us 2020 vision to be able to see the attributes of God with clarity. Leave out the cross and we might as well read the Bible in a pitch dark room holding the scripture upside down. Take out the cross and you have a better chance to describe to a blind man why A green forest under a wonderful blue sky is breathtaking than for us to be able to appreciate the grace and mercy of our God. Remove the cross from the center, even by an inch. And all the other beautiful doctrines will come crashing down. It is at the cross. Not only do we know that God forgives sins, but we know how God forgives sinners. We know how God justifies the ungodly. 
It is at the altar of the cross, the infinite justice of God and the infinite mercy of God would kiss each other with a holy kiss. The cross is so central to our belief that Paul summarized the entire gospel message by which we're saved. And he says, the word of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And he desired to boast in nothing else but the cross. Galatians 6.14 And he determined not to preach anything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 Do we want to know how awful God's hatred is toward our sin? We look at the cross. Do we want to see the holy judgment of God against our sin? We look at the cross. Do we want to behold the infinite, unconditional love and grace of God for unworthy sinners on display? Guess what we do? We look at the cross. Do you want to be saved? And have all your sins forgiven and thrown into the depth of the sea. Meaning, do you want to be accepted by the Father? Sheltered from His wrath, protected by His power, and experience His majestic love. What do you do? You look at the cross. One look upon the cross. One glimpse of faith into the bleeding Lamb of God. And you are saved. If you believe Jesus died for you, you are saved. This is the power of the cross. And even furthermore, for us who who believe, what about endurance? What about finding strength to forgive? Power to overcome sin? What about understanding the extent of our devotion? All that and much more are found in the cross. So, brothers, it is to this end we must slow down. And we must carefully adore the work of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Lord willing, It is to this end, are we going to take our time, passage by passage, smaller chunks, expositing the word of God and understanding what the cross really means to us who believe and even to those who do not believe. I pray as we continue studying the cross of Jesus that we will continue committed to reflect deeper on that cross on which the Lord of glory was nailed to. The outline for today, we're going to look at the suffering to the cross, the suffering at the cross, and the suffering on the cross. And just as a freebie, we're going to throw in a fourth point. 
And we look at the soldiers beneath the cross. All right. Just to set up the stage, a quick background. Where are we at now with the Gospel of Mark? Well, it's now Friday morning at Pontus Palace at Jerusalem. Jesus was condemned to death by the Jewish leaders, forsaken by his followers, mocked, beaten, spat upon by the Romans. And now the time for his crucifixion was at hand. And we pick up the narrative, um, and perhaps it's better to start from the end of verse 20. And now we look at the suffering to the cross. Just the last sentence of that verse 20, it says, And they led him out to crucify him. And if you take even a closer look to this sentence, you'd notice that there is an asterisk just preceding the word led. And the reason why is because in the original Greek manuscript, this word led is not in past, in the past tense, it is in the present tense. So it ought to be read, and they lead him out to crucify him. Mark sometimes does that so that the readers will give even more full attention um, to the event at hand as though it is currently right now happening. In other words, it is as though Mark is saying to all of us this morning, take a look at this moment, right at this moment, look at Jesus Christ. Here is the scourged and tortured Savior. See him there with his bleeding shoulders. Now, as you see him there with his bleeding shoulders, they're placing the, the, the cross beam upon his open wounds as he, as he begins his journey to his crucifixion. And so let us set up the scene. And what happened from that point all the way to to Calvary? Well, four Roman soldiers would have surrounded Jesus with whips in in their hands. One of them would hold the wooden plate that has the inscription of Jesus' crime on it, as it says in John 19, 19. And it would say, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And there would have been a centurion in charge of the execution and he would be marching ahead of Jesus. And as he is spearheading this procession, we know at the very beginning Jesus carried his own cross because in John 19 verse 17 it says that they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross. It was the Romans' practice to compel the criminal and to bear his own cross all the way to the place of crucifixion. Why? Because those criminals that were worthy of such death were, were so rebels. They're the, they're the worst kind of rebels at that time. 
Their will to oppose Rome was so strong and it needed to be broken. So what they decided to do, the Romans, is that they compel them to carry the cross beam and it is intended to break the, the prisoner's will. Not so much only the will that opposes Rome, but the will to live. And it spoke to the crossbearer as though it's saying to them, to, to him, you are already dead. Rome is in charge. And he would begin his will-crushing journey, walking through the longest road possible all the way to the outside of the gate of the city, passing through the marketplace, the traffic jam, the busyness of the city, thousands of bystanders and either sides of the road, watching this horrifying procession taking place. It was like a, a public advertisement. So all the citizens would know that this man is a dead man. The authority of Rome reigns supreme. It is Rome that calls the final shot. So as this was happening, now let us consider the suffering of our Savior. Now up to this point, if you recall, he had sleepless night, overwhelming pressure at Gethsemane, if you recall, as he was praying to the Father, the broken body because of the scourging, the loss of blood, and not to mention the betrayal, the denial, the six trials that he undergone. So Jesus would have been emotionally and, and physically exhausted. And so not all the whips of the world at that time would have been able to motivate him to move any further. And Jesus was done. So to keep the wheel turning, time is running. Oh, time is ticking. Verse 21 tells us now that they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. So Jesus is kind of, you can imagine, crawling along the road. The crossbeam weighed, the history tells us, about 45 kilograms or just a little bit more than that. And it would have felt so heavy considering uh, that what Jesus has just undergone. You place it um, upon his torn shoulders and he would have been exhausted. And so as he would be walking along this road, he would wobble, he would stumble, he would tumble over. And it wouldn't be surprising if he fell under the full weight of the cross beam. So one of the soldiers would have looked around, so many people to choose from, and there's this an unidentified man, innocent Jew, named, the scripture tells us, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene, it's, it's in North Africa, next to Egypt. And this man just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. He didn't know what was going on. He wasn't from Jerusalem. And so um, he would have been at Jerusalem at that time. He was a Jew. And so he would have been there most likely to celebrate the Passover. But Rome had a different plan for this man. They compelled him to share the suffering of Christ. Literally speaking. 
It says there, to bear his cross. Now, even though Rome meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Salvation has come into his house. How do we know that? Well, this is beautiful. It says, the father of Alexander and Rufus, implying, you know, the, the, the Alexander and Rufus, it's, it's their father, implying they knew who that man was, or at least these two children were. Paul wrote to that same group of people that Mark wrote the gospel to. It's a book of Rome. Remember, Mark wrote that gospel to the Romans. And to the Roman church, Paul wrote in Romans 16, verse 13. He said, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Also his mother and mine. Meaning Rufus and his mother were godly, godly people. Rufus is Simon's son. His mother, that is Simon's wife. In other words, most likely, um, sometime after this inf- incident took place, Simon opened his heart. He believed in the Lord Jesus. And then after that, he shared the gospel with his family and they believed. Mark is telling his Romans, Roman audience, um, do you know Alexander and Rufus? You know, um, these godly Christians in your church. Well, it was their father who had the blessing and shared the physical suffering with our Savior. And this is beautiful, is it not? Now, as you examine this passage carefully and connect it with what Mark already wrote, no doubt that Mark had in his mind what he said earlier on in Mark 8.34, when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark wanted to give perhaps a vivid Example of what it means to carry the cross and to follow Jesus. In fact, check this out. I love this because in the in the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, Luke renders it. I think it's even a more beautiful way because he said that Simon of Cyrene carried the cross behind Jesus. So here is a man who bore the cross and followed Jesus. And Simon did literally what he will do later on spiritually. And not only him, but every believer in Jesus would have to do. Peter couldn't make it any clearer. Peter said it once in 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The Christians are called to bear the cross of death on their back and to follow the steps of the Messiah. What does it mean? Well, it means exactly how it was rendered at that time. 
It means that we're not ashamed to declare to all that we're criminals in the sight of a holy God. That we are rebels worthy of death. It means that we, we are dead men. Dead to the glamour of this world. Dead to the system of this world. And while we carry this cross beam on our back, and as we are suffering for Jesus, we are following behind Christ. And just like for Jesus, it was a public, it's meant to be a public advertisement to let everyone know that we're no longer called the shot. But it's the authority of Christ that reigns supremely in our lives. And he's the one that calls the final shot. The only difference between Simon at that point and all believers is that for Simon, it was imposed on him. He forcefully had to carry this cross. But for us as Christians, we, we do it willfully. We, we bear this cross cheerfully and freely. We bear the cross of our Savior and follow Him not because we love suffering, right? Only crazy people enjoy suffering, right? We don't. No, we bear this cross and follow our Savior because we love and anticipate the eternal weight of glory that comes as a result of our suffering for Christ. We hunger and long for the sweet fellowship with Jesus as we are crucifying our passion of the flesh. We boast in our suffering for Christ because we would be counting it worthy to suffer for his namesake. We do it willfully because as the language of Hebrews 11.26, we consider the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. That is a suffering to the cross. And God calls all Christians to follow Christ to the cross. And second, we look at the suffering at the cross, just before our Savior was crucified. In verse 22, it says, Then they, that's the execution quad, that's the squad, that's the Roman soldiers. It says, Then they brought him to the place Golgotha. Now, no one knows exactly um where this location is, where our Lord was crucified. But we know one thing for sure, that this was outside of the city of Jerusalem. We know that because Hebrews eleven twelve it says, He suffered outside the gate. Also in John nineteen twenty it says, The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. The city means the city of Jerusalem. So the parade exited the city outside of the gate. And nearby there was a place called Golgotha. That's Aramaic word. People at the time of Jesus, they knew what it meant. 
Golgotha, but Mark now wants to help his Roman readers, and he says to them, which is translated the place of a skull. That is to say, it's a place of death, a place where they burn dead animals or um, a place of rubbish tip. You remember when we spoke about hell, Gehennem, Gehenna, and that's outside of the city, and there's some rubbish tip where worms eat the flesh of dead animals. There will be flies, there will be filth, there will be disgust. This is where our Lord was publicly executed by crucifixion. But just before they nailed our Lord to the cross, in verse 23, it says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. What is myrrh? It's a strong drug. It tastes very bitter. In in fact, the word myrrh means bitter. And it's kind of a painkiller. It deadens pain by by numbing the nerves. And, And when you mix it with wine, it can cause you to be drowsy. Now, Nat, in this word they, some, some people claim that, that this uh, does not refer to the soldiers since it, it, it's, it's a kind of a painkiller. So some uh, commentaries believe that it refers to the women that followed Jesus to the cross. You know, they want to comfort him. I don't believe that this is true. Uh, if Mark introduced a new group of people, he, he would have at least him or, or another gospel would have made it clearer that it wasn't the soldiers that offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. But that's not the case. Um, to be consistent with the narrative up to this point, they must refer to the soldiers. Now some, some others say, well, okay, Perhaps the soldiers um, are now pitying our Savior. That's why they want to deaden his pain. Well, I don't believe that's true either because some, it's not that somehow they brutally tortured him and, and now they decided to feel sorry for him. No, nor is this the impression that we get. From Psalm 69 verse 20, which is a prophetic psalm that was fulfilled at that point when Jesus was crucified. Let me read to you. And, that, and that's why I don't believe that it would have been neither women, uh, the women that followed Jesus, nor was it the soldiers felt sorry for Jesus. Psalm 69 verse 20 says this, the reproach has broken my heart. That's Jesus speaking. And I am so sick, and I looked for sympathy, but there was none. So it's not the soldiers who were sympathizing with Jesus. And it says, and for comforters, but I found none. There was no one that was comforting Jesus at that point. Yes, it was the soldiers that would have wanted to deaden his pain. But that's so that they could crucify him uh, with little resistance. It wasn't an act of mercy. It was to make the labor of placing him on the cross easier for themselves. 
so he doesn't wrestle and fight too much as they nail him to the cross. Now, Mark continues on and he says, but he did not take it. Jesus refused to reduce his pain. He didn't want to be drowsy. Why is that? Why did Jesus refuse to numb his pain? Well, let me tell you why the wrong answers. And let me tell you afterwards the right answers. Number one, it's not because somehow he wants people to feel sorry for him. Okay? It's not that he was seeking sympathy or pity from man. So somehow he decided to experience the the full spectrum of, of torture. It's not that. Nor was it because taking painkillers is a sin. No. We thank God for Penadine Ford and, and all the other painkillers that we, we take when, when we're at pain. All right? Why did Jesus refuse to numb his pain? Please listen and listen closely. Jesus always placed the glory of God above his comfort. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He always placed the glory of God above his comfort. Jesus never operated by that framework that says, well, if it's not a sin issue and it makes me feel comfortable, I'll do it. No, that's a a lousy version of holiness. Jesus was captivated by one question, one question only, and it governed every step of his way. And the question is this, what choice should I take that would bring maximum glory to God? How should I make best use of my time? It's not about, well, so long it's that it's not wrong, then I'll do whatever makes me feel good. Brothers, this is such a selfish kind of Christianity that is born out of hell and may God bring fire upon it because it's not in the Bible. You won't find it in the Word of God. Jesus was motivated by how should I maximize my usefulness to the Father. Even if I'm experiencing severe pain, Jesus wanted to have clarity of mind so he could evangelize to the thieves on the cross so that he would pray, so that he would entrust his mother to John and vice versa. Jesus wanted to be fully awake, to be able to say, it is finished with clarity of mind after he accomplished redemption. That's the first reason why Jesus would have refused to drink of the wine mixed with myrrh. 
The second reason. Jesus knew that the cup of his suffering was ultimately from the Father, not from man. It was a vicarious suffering. Commissioned by the Father. Jesus was determined to drink the last bitter dreg of that cup of his suffering. While at the same time fully conscious. In other words, Jesus wanted to endure all the physical pain. Not only the spiritual, but also the physical pain for his people. So he was willing to embrace all the agony that would come to him as he would suffer on the cross for us. He did it voluntarily. He gave us his soul and body and there was no room for sparing himself. No shortcuts. Jesus never took the path of least resistance. So he could be our perfect substitute in every way. Imagine that. Jesus was willing to experience all kinds of suffering that we deserve to experience. What a savior. What a savior we have. What a radical savior. What a bold and courageous savior. Refusing all drugs that would have deadened his his pain in order to suffer for us. That was suffering at the cross. Third, suffering on the cross. So we'll go back to the narrative now. They've arrived to Golgotha. By the way, Golgotha, that's where the word where we get the word Calvary. Calvary is Golgotha. I think it's Latin. And Simon would have slammed the cross beam to the ground next to a standing post, no doubt he threw it down in disgust. He was not yet a believer. He was forced to carry that cross beam and he would have thrown it in in disgust because he was a Jew and every Jew knew that Jesus was a cursed man. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, He who is hanged is accursed of God. And so who would want to carry a cross in which a rebel that is accursed of God will be hanged upon? The reason why accursed of God would be hung is because anything he would touch, he would infect with the same curse. So he would have had to be hung above the ground, lest he would touch the ground and the ground would be defiled. In verse 24, it says, and they crucified him. Now these are four condensed but deadly words, literally speaking. Machia makes it so concise. Though being crucified is the most horrifying physical torture. But Mark here used the most basic words possible to describe what happened at Jesus' death. And Mark is not the only one, by the way. None of the gospel writers have a single word to describe the physical agony that was involved. 
They all throw veil, if you like, over the physical sufferings. And why is that? It's not that. Well, let me tell you. Why not? It's not because um, Jesus did not suffer, suffer severely, physically speaking, but it's because the gospel writers don't want us to pity Christ. They give us fact, not feeling, so that we believe in Christ. That's their intention. But there's another reason why um, they don't describe in full detail what happened at the cross because everybody knew at that time that to be crucified, it was the most horrifying form of execution devised by man at that time, invented way earlier, hundreds of years earlier. But then when Rome picked it up, they mastered the art of torture by means of the cross. Everyone knew at that time that it was a gruesome the gruesome details of nailing someone to a tree. How did they know? Well, those criminals that were crucified, they weren't hung in private places like they do today. You know, when they kill people, capital punishment that, that gets done behind closed doors. No. These people that were hung at that time, and we're talking about, Thousands and tens of thousands of them that would have been hung at public places on the highways. Everyone knew what it looked like, what it smelled like to be crucified. Well, I don't want to torture you with the, exactly what happened at the cross, but I, but I, but we understand. We need to understand that we live in a very different culture. And we're not aware exactly what happened at the time when someone was crucified. So I just want to give you a bird eye view of what happened. So here you have Simon. He slammed down the cross beam. The soldiers removed all of Jesus' clothes from him. He's now laying down on the ground naked. They would get his shoulders and they would throw it upon the cross beam. And then the soldiers would extend Jesus' arms. One soldier would take one arm, he would bend his knee and pin it on Jesus' arm, and then he would place this nail as long as 17 centimeters, and he would place it directly on Jesus' wrist, definitely not in his hand. Otherwise, Jesus would have fallen off the, the cross. And he would have looked for the soft spot between the bones. And once he finds it, he would drive this nail into the cross beam, um, damaging whatever nerves that are going through while it was penetrating the wrist. No, no doubt it would have sent shocking pain to the, to the brain. Then he would have gone to the other side and would have done the exact same thing on the other arm. And then the four soldiers would get together and they would raise the cross beam with Jesus dangling from it and fasten it to a standing post. And you have one soldier would try to attach the horizontal cross beam to the standing post and the other and another soldier would hold the left foot, place it on the cross 
and then get the second, the right foot, place it on top of the left one, and with even a larger nail, would drive it through the feet of Jesus and hammer it into the crossbeam or the standing post. There is a journal published by the American Medical Association, which gives um, um, the most complete review of what happened to Jesus at the cross. You can ask me later, I can refer you to it. But I've got here a few descriptions of what they said that would have happened to Jesus at the cross. There would have been severe inflammation. The swelling of the wounds in the region of the nails. Unbearable pain from torn tendons. Fearful discomfort from the strained position of the body. Throbbing headache. Burning thirst. And you can read the rest for yourself from this journal. But basically, simply put, Jesus underwent limitless pain. Obviously, as we know, even with all the physical pain, it's nothing compared to the spiritual torture that he will experience. And we'll talk about this in another sermon. But suffice to say that Jesus would have died a thousand deaths before he actually died on the cross. That's a suffering at the cross or on the cross. On the cross. So we looked at the suffering to the cross. We looked at the suffering at the cross just before he was hung on the tree. And then we looked at the suffering on the cross. And we come to the freebie, the final point the soldiers beneath the cross. So while Jesus, the innocent God man, was suffering, it says there that they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Here is the cruelty of man in his perfect contrast to the mercy of God. How apathetic those soldiers were. How cold, how indifferent they were to the suffering of the Savior. See, in one hand, you've got these soldiers who are sitting there so indifferent to what Jesus is experiencing, throwing dice for themselves to get what they want, while at the same time, Jesus is offering his body and soul as a lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. In one hand, that was savagely trying to figure out who would take Jesus' clothes while Jesus was shamefully hung naked. And what is astonishing is that that day they were in the presence of the most glorious person in the world, sacrificially performing the greatest deed in the world. And their eyes were wide open. But they couldn't look. They were so blinded. And they couldn't behold him. 
Brothers, it's not the Lord that is meant to be pitied here. It's these soldiers. Think about it. How much did they get out of this deal? Dirty clothes. A belt. But there's no change of heart. No forgiveness. No savior. Nothing. There was no desire to to cling to Christ. And as we're coming to the end of the message, and before we give the conclusion, let's just reflect on these soldiers for a bit. Because my greatest fear as a pastor, as a teacher of the word, that somehow some of us here this morning will be indifferent as those soldiers were. I fear that there will be some of us sitting in this room will be like those soldiers. Some will come here in this place of worship, in the presence of our Lord, sitting to to hear the preaching of the word, but yet at the same time so uncaring about the Savior. And just like those soldiers, they will come desiring the possessions of Christ, but not Christ himself. And their mind is caught up with the affairs of this world. And while they come and they see that the Lord Jesus himself gave his body and soul, but they barely give the least of their affections because they're too busy loving the leisure entertainment of this world. And even right now, they may even be thinking about their work and what they're going to do after the service is finished with their work, duty, and commitment to their work. Ignoring the master who died in order to forgive sins. How terrible, how disgusting. And so even though we may know the suffering and the agony of our Lord for our sins, bearing in his own body our griefs and sorrows, and rather than saying, God, I'm burning with passion right now. Lord Jesus, here are our hearts. Here is my family. And my heart and all my possessions, I place them at your feet. Rather than that, some of us will be so cold, so uncaring, and they hug their health and their wealth to their own chest. And like those soldiers, they give most of their affections to vain, worthless things and only give the Lord Jesus Pity cash. May it never be. May it never be. May God have mercy upon their souls. May they repent of their attitude 
God forbid that we would be like those soldiers and be okay with it. Brothers, sisters, let us be like that Simon of Cyrene who followed Christ not just to Calvary but all the way to the end of his life and raise godly men and godly women and godly wives and husbands at home. May we be like Simon, not like soldiers. Well, as we come to the end, we come to the conclusion after having seen a suffering Savior for our sins, and we have examined and we have seen how Simon responded to this and to, to Jesus' suffering and how the soldiers responded to Jesus' suffering. I want to close by asking this question, and it was in fact asked last Sunday by someone, which is why death on the cross? Why death on the cross? Why couldn't Jesus just die while he's asleep? Why? Why so much suffering? Well, let me give you three reasons today. And as I said, we are slowing down and we're going to take it one bit at a time and not, don't be surprised if that question doesn't pop again with even more additional reasons later on in other sermons. Let me give you three reasons why. Number one is to show how exceedingly sinful our sin really is. Jesus did not die with a heart attack, but he was hung on a cross to show how exceedingly sinful our sin is. Isaiah 53 verse 5, it says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening, meaning the punishment for our well-being, fell upon him. Listen to this beautiful quote by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, We took our sins and drove them like nails through his hands and feet. We, we lifted him high up on the cross of our transgressions. And when we pierced, and then we pierced his heart through with the spear of our unbelief. It is our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. Friend, brother, sister, do you want to hold that cruel murderer of our Lord? Place your hand upon your chest. Do you want to hear the voice of the, of the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him? Hear your voice shouting and yelling at your family. It was us. It was me and you that crucified the Lord of glory. Not until we know and we see the hammer in, in our hand and the nails on the other hand. Not until we see that. We'll never appreciate what Jesus has done on the cross. 
The second reason why Jesus died such a horrendous death is to show us the greatness of God's love. Romans 5, 8, everybody knows this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is to show the love of God. Brothers, if all that Christ had done was to come to earth and lived in a prestige palace, and a few years later he died out of a heart attack, we would have appreciated what he's done and we'd have, we would have still seen the beauty of God's love for us. For how could it be the eternal Lord would come and die for unworthy worms like us? And even if all that Jesus had done was to come, live and get executed by some means of honorable, noble execution behind closed doors with his clothes on, like perhaps electric chair or something where he doesn't feel hardly any pain, we would have still seen so much of God's love for us. For how could he do such a marvelous thing for wicked people like us. But that's not what Christ has done, brothers and sisters. No. He's come. He, he died the most agonizing, shameful death for wretched, unworthy sinners like us. How could it be? What in the world? What kind of off-the-chart love is this? What, what words that could ever describe this infinite affection and commitment God has towards us displayed on the cross? To have the greatest Messiah, to die the worst death for the vilest sinners and grant Him the best gift ever known to man without any merit of their own. If this doesn't Show the enormity of God's love towards us. Nothing else will. Let it be in the very fabric of our own being. Knowing this, Jesus died for me. It speaks of his love for me. And certainly on the cross, it would show so much more love than to die of a heart attack. And that is certainly why he wanted to communicate to us. And the final thing, I believe it would have communicated to us or should communicate to us is the depth and the height, the width and the length of our devotion to Christ and what it ought to be like. Jesus died for us absolutely to show us our sin definitely, to show us the love of God for sure, but he also died as an example to follow his footsteps. Every Christian must have the cross of Jesus Christ piercing right through his own heart, nailing all their passions on that tree, following him unwaverly, unconditionally, throwing behind us, if necessary, even our own health, our, the health of our own family, in order to pursue Christ, because it is Christ and him crucified is our highest priority, and everything else falls beneath this. 
I want to I wanna share with you the quote that our brother Jean shared earlier. What a beautiful quote. I thought it's best describing the commandment that we have as a result of knowing the cross of Jesus and what he's done for us. Here is John Wesley. John Wesley says, I'm no longer my own, but yours. Pull me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. May this be our heart this morning, brothers and sisters. May we give all to Christ because he's worthy of all and much more. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. Your love is indescribable and it is overwhelming. And it compels us. The love of Christ compels us. It overwhelms us. It internally drives us to give him all that we have. May we all be partakers of this joy of living for nothing else, for no one else, but for your son Jesus alone. And may it be proclaimed to every corner of Melbourne that we have one Lord and it is our heart desire to live for him the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.